Our Father, as we study the life of this man, Joshua, you told him to be strong and courageous and to know that the Lord his God was with him. And Father, Jesus told us, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. We're grateful that you have not saved us and then allowed us to go out on our own and try to work our way through to the promised land, but that you have gone before us, you go with us, you go around us, that you too lead us even as you did Israel. And Father, I pray that we will respond to you better than Israel did, that we will respond to you as Joshua did and as Caleb did, that we will be men and women who are examples to this lost and dying world, this sinking world, of the salvation that is in Christ and the possibilities, uh, the realities of what it is to live a godly life. Lord, bless our study this morning. Empower us according to your word. Bless in every uh, portion of the ministry of the word on this, in this complex this day. And wherever your word is proclaimed today throughout the world, we pray that you will glorify yourself and bring many into the kingdom. We thank you for your presence here in Christ's name. Amen. The past three Sundays, we have studied the apprenticeship of Joshua. Joshua had probably the finest master teacher in history other than Jesus Christ himself in the person of Moses. We studied this apprenticeship by looking at the 28 references to Joshua that are found in the Pentateuch before you ever get to the book of Joshua. What we found, I think, was an amazing story of a man who, although he was for 40 years in the shadow of his mentor, was being prepared in every way, emotionally, physically, spiritually, to step into his mentor's sandals, as it were, in the appointed hour. You remember, I emphasize the fact that Joshua was the only man of the entire Israelite camp other than Moses who was allowed on Mount Sinai as God met with Moses up in the cloud. Now, Joshua wasn't in the cloud, but he was down below on the mountain and certainly interceding for his mentor and for his people. We also saw that Joshua was, of course, the great commander in battle. He was the one who led Israel in victory over the Amalekites. We saw that he and Caleb alone of the 12 spies argued with the people of Israel, we must go in, God will give us the land. And of course, the people turned against their advice, but they still stood there alone, begging with the people to heed God's word and to be obedient. So Joshua knew what it was like to be lonely in the sense of isolated from his people because Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron and Miriam, I suppose you could say, were the only ones who were willing to walk in obedience at that time, at least that we have record of in Scripture. Then also we remember that Joshua reveled in his God, and Joshua reveled in the uh, obedience and the life of his mentor. He was the defender of Moses at any instance that it was possible. What it all boils down to was that Joshua was a faithful man. Not perfect, of course, and as we study through the book of Joshua, we find a few crinks, kinks, or whatever term you want to use in his uh, spiritual nature, but nevertheless, a faithful man. Let's read in the first chapter of Joshua, beginning at the first verse. We read this last time, and I talked just briefly 
about the first chapter, but let me read the first nine verses again. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all, all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all, do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We looked a little bit again, uh, reminded ourselves of the land that was given to Israel. The uh, parameters were given earlier in the Pentateuch. Uh, there was just a kind of a reminder given to Joshua here that their territory was to be from the Euphrates in Syria to the Mediterranean Sea, from Lebanon or the land of the White Mountains all the way down to the uh, wilderness of Zin in the south where they had been wandering at least in part for, for the 40 years. It was, a, it was a significant land. It was a land far greater than modern Israel in terms of total square mileage. Um, it was a land that, of course, is described as flowing with milk and honey. And if you've ever visited there, you wonder where the milk and honey are. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, we must remember, in, too, that 3,500 years ago, it was a land that hadn't been uh, literally raped as it has been now, uh, particularly after the Jews were pushed out of the land and the Romans came in, and then later the peoples that the Israelites were supposed to have defeated and, and pushed out reoccupied the land. And, and it's been rather a mistreated land for the better part of the last 2,000 years. At one time, it was covered with forests. The streams flowed fuller than they do now. Obviously, land that's been stripped of its forest, the water is going to run off quickly, and, and you're not going to have perennial rivers where at one time you had perennial rivers. As you probably know, the Dead Sea is steadily falling, and that isn't, of course, simply because of the trees being stripped off, but because both Jordan and Israel are taking so much water that uh, the flow into the Dead Sea is inadequate to maintain its level. Israel did not occupy all of that land that was given to them. Only possibly in the days of David and Solomon were the borders of Israel more or less what God had ordained them to be. The people of Israel wearied of the work. They grew tired, and they didn't press on to achieve all that God had given them to do. And in that, of course, is a great lesson. The lesson that God has given us a task to do, and we are to persevere to the end and not give up before he has said it's time to, to move on to something else. 
But Israel gave up, even with its brilliant leader, Joshua, and did not accomplish all that God had given them to do. But nevertheless, God was faithful to Israel. We, we should never think of God as willing to, to take just, you know, second best, but God will work with what we give Him. But we're the losers if we don't do all that He has given us to do or called us to do or empowered us to do. We're the losers, and this means He has to bring someone else in to do the task which was given to us to do. Moses is a little bit of an example of that because had Moses not failed God, uh, God there at the waters of Meribah, I think God would have allowed him to go into the land and he would have been the leader of the conquest. But because of his, his, his failure there, God brought another man in to complete the work and that was the man Joshua. In verse 5 of this passage, we read a, a stupendous statement. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. This, of course, means in opposition. No man will be able to stand in opposition to you all the days of your life. So strong would the Lord be in Joshua that no one could resist him as long as Joshua lived and as long as Joshua walked in obedience. And I think this has to be viewed as both physical and spiritual. It wasn't just spiritual. It wasn't just physical. It was both. Joshua was to be the great commander of his people. He would lead them physically in the conquest, but he was also to lead them spiritually in their walk with God and in spiritual victory. What a promise. How would you like God to say to you, and no one will stand or be able to resist you all the days of your life? Well, God has said that to the church and to his people. Most of us are familiar with the sixth chapter of Ephesians. We won't turn to it there. But we're taught there that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. But the passage goes on to tell us that we have victory over them because we have the armor of God available to us and the word of God and prayer to give us the victory. And as we apply the armor of God, as we use the word of God, and, and, and as we understand the power of prayer, no man, no man of this world, no force in this world, no evil force will be able to stand against us individually or corporately as we seek to accomplish the purposes of God in this life. Philippians 4.13 puts it in a very, very succinct manner. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Just a few words, but can, can, you, can you visualize the power in that verse? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That doesn't mean, of course, that I can high jump higher than anyone else necessarily. It doesn't mean I can hit more home runs than Mr. McGuire, you know, unnecessarily. It, it is, of course, talking about all the things that God has given us to do. And the things God gives us to do are far more important things than jumping higher or hitting a ball farther or many of the other things that the world lauds. They are far more important things, things of the eternal kingdom. And we can do them if God has called us to do them through his strength. And he will be with us just as he was with Moses and just as he was with Joshua. Paul's words to the church at Corinth are, I think, familiar to us. And they further define our battle. 
I think 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this passage I'm referring to, is a good passage for us to, to keep in mind because it again, like Ephesians 6, teaches us that we are wrestling with unseen forces. We're doing battle with the spiritual realm. And we must do that battle in the spiritual realm and in the spirit. We can't fight the spiritual warfare in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's got to happen in us, of course, before we can be God's instrument to see that happen in others. Our thoughts have to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We have to not be taken in by speculations and lofty things. This world is full of speculations and lofty things. This world is full of all kinds of deceptive religious teachings. And some of them are so subtle that they just can easily suck us in if we're not familiar with the armor of God and the power of prayer and the Word of God. Satan's devices, I mean, we just always have to remember, Satan does not work with a bludgeon all the time. He is extremely subtle much of the time. He comes as an angel of light. I mean, he looks... How many times have you read stories of people who have no profession of faith, but they talk about having a near-death experience, and they're sailing off down this tunnel, and there's this bright, warm light, and this, this creature of light welcoming them at the other end. Who is that? It's the angel of light. Satan disguised as if he were God. So the people are lulled into the sense of complacency. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Just kind of, you know, be a decent guy, don't kick your dog and you'll be okay. And that is, of course, very fitting with our pluralistic society, which says, hey, don't, don't call this person bad or don't call this, uh, this philosophy evil or incorrect, but everything's okay. Joshua was a man who had seen firsthand how God had been with Moses in a powerful and intimate way. Remember, he had walked almost hand in hand, not literally, but side by side he had walked with Moses for 40 years. And in that length of time, you get to know somebody pretty well. When that man is your teacher, your mentor, the, the one that you know, you're looking up to for direction and guidance and for the pattern for your own life. And thus, when God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I mean, that must have sent chills up and down Joshua's spine. Whoa, you know. Because he knew how God had been with Joshua. It was exhilarating. But I think it was also a bit challenging for Joshua. Because Joshua, I think, was humble enough of a man to know that uh, this was a big, big job he was inheriting. And I don't think he ever arrogated himself to equality or superiority over Moses. I think he always thought of himself as if he were Moses' right-hand man, never equal to Moses. And so this was important that he receive this promise from God. God said, I will never fail you or forsake you. Never fail you or forsake you. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had such a promise from God Almighty as Joshua received? Well, obviously you know that we have. We have received many promises like that. But one of them I thought would be appropriate here is to read from the 13th chapter of Hebrews. The scripture has been given for our instruction and our inspiration. And what God says to his men and women of the past, God says to us. And as he said to Moses and Joshua, I will be with you and I will not fail you. He says that to us corporately and he says that to us individually. Let me read the context here, which would be the first eight verses. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money being content with what you have for he himself has said I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. That verse is partly coming from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. So that we confidently say, and he quotes the psalmist, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. Now that last verse is quoted in a lot of contexts, but in this context it's telling us that as Yahweh was with Joshua, as Yahweh was with the psalmist, so Yahweh in Jesus Christ is with us yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can walk in the same confidence that Moses and Joshua walked. And if we are walking in obedience, we must not consider our walk as less significant than that of Moses and Joshua. Sure, Moses and Joshua may have had more people in their charge than you or may, I may have, but that's not the point. You know, God is not more honored by the person who leads 10,000 people off into the ways of righteousness than he is by one who leads 10 people. That's one of the reasons why, for example, Wycliffe Bible Translators goes out and, and puts 20 years of effort into a tribe of 200 people. I mean, Elizabeth Elliot here and uh, Nate Saint's sister uh, spent years, and, and Nate Saint's sister, longest of all, Rachel Saint, in, in learning the Alka language and putting the scripture into the Alka language. How many Alkas are there? I mean, we have more people attend this church on Sunday morning than there are Alcas in the world. Some would say, why bother, you know? There's there so few of them. Because God cares about those people. And God is just as honored by the people who invest 20 years of their life uh, to, to bring the message of the gospel to 200 as he is by Moses who led 2 million through the wilderness. And it's just as important to consider the fact that God is with us as he was with Moses and Joshua. We need, of course, to understand what all of this, uh, how all of this applies, though, and how it works. It isn't automatic. God is not with us automatically 
giving us strength and wisdom and direction if we are not obedient. In verses 6 through 9 of Joshua chapter 1, uh, which we read a little bit ago, we find statements that are critical to understanding the basis for true spiritual strength and courage. How can you go forth in true spiritual strength and courage? How can that happen? Well, first we find God commanded Joshua to be strong and courageous because God had a work for him to do. God had called him to lead Israel into the conquest so he could be strong and courageous because he knew he was doing God's work. This was God's will. This was God's call upon his life. And so as he went forth, he knew where God guides, God provides, as the little saying goes. Where God puts his people, he empowers his people to do the work that he's called them to do. But God repeats the command to be strong and courageous in verse 7. And he adds a warning. Be careful to do according to all the law which, Mo which Moses, my servant, commanded you. So it was not just, just go do the thing and I'll be with you. There was a qualifier. There was a condition. And that is obedience to the Word of God. So his courage and his strength in God were directly linked to his obedience to God's written Word. This is a momentous command. Never before in history had God's Word been put down in print so that it was accessible for a man like Joshua to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it, and to obey it. Prior to this, it had always been oral. Now it is written, Moses was God's inspired writer who gave us the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Scripture. And Joshua had those as his guide. Now, there are many people who are Christians today who would say, I couldn't be a Christian if I only had the Pentateuch. Because many of them haven't even read the Pentateuch. And all they've read is the New Testament. The New Testament's a wonderful thing to, to have. But what if you don't have the New Testament? Joshua didn't have the New Testament. He didn't even have the Psalms. All he had was the Pentateuch. Do you know you can know God through the Pentateuch? I trust we've found that as we've studied through it for seven years now. <laughs> One of the most profound truths that I discovered through my own study of the Old Testament was that there is no truth in the New Testament that you can't find in the Old Testament. It's all there. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Joshua was never to neglect or ignore the Word of God. On the contrary, he was to meditate upon it day and night. It was to so permeate his thinking that 24 hours a day it guided his thoughts and decisions. Now, in order to do this, of course, he had to become a monk, right? He had to go off in a monastery, and for 24 hours a day, he had to focus on the Word and eat and sleep and pray and focus on the Word and eat and sleep and pray. Is that what he had to do? No, God had something else for him to do. He was to be commander-in-chief of the army. He was to be chief administrator of Israel and chief judge for two and a half million people. I don't leave you a whole lot of time to be a monk. But he could begin and he could end each day with a meditation in the Word of God. It could be in his mind so that as he went forth to lead, as he went forth to administer, as he went forth to judge, the Word of God was permeating his thinking. 
And his words and his decisions, his judgments, were based on the premises, on the teaching of the law of God. He had to make a conscious commitment to obey it. And if he did so, the Spirit of God would, as, we, as you read in verse 8, make his way prosperous and successful. You and I live in a day, an age, when a lot of people sit on churches, sit in churches. And a lot of people call themselves Christians. But a lot of people don't take the Word of God into their being and live it. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Jesus said, you are my disciple if you do what I say. He doesn't say, you are my disciple if you say you are one. You are my disciple if you say, Jesus saved me. He says, you are my disciple if you obey me. So when we cry out to Jesus to save us and he transforms our lives, we then become his disciples through living his word daily. That's why we have to know his word. can't live it if we don't know it. So the word of God is the key, is the key to a meaningful, satisfying, worthwhile life. And we live in a world of people who seem to not have meaningful, satisfying, worthwhile lives. They're committing suicide, they're, they're taking methamphetamines, they're getting drunk, they're going through multiple marriages, they're doing all these things, trying to find a meaningful, satisfying life. And of course, they're, to use the old phrase, they're barking up the wrong tree, right? They don't know that all of that is found in the Word of God. Without it, people wander in the desert as Israel did for 40 years. They wander in the spiritual desert and unfortunately they die in that desert and they never see the promised land eternally or in this life. It is extremely important to notice in this passage and in other passages of Scripture, it does not say that to have a successful and meaningful and obedient life to please God and to be all that God wants us to be, that we must obey traditions, that we must have membership in religious institutions, that we must revere icons or pray to saints or earn God's favor by doing good works or anything else that the institutionalized church has come up with to allow the Word of God to be displaced from its central position. That is one of the great keys of the Christian life, to know that the Word of God is central. It's got to be in the middle of our lives. We can't displace it with warm fuzzies, good feelings, you know, nice friendships. We need those, but it can't replace the Scripture. Lots of twangy little choruses, that's fine, but it can't replace the Scripture. It's got to be central. There are some people who would like us just to have choruses all morning and not have a message. You can't be a disciple of Christ that way. The message, the word. If you go back to the old uh, Puritans uh, of New England, the I mean, the whole week was lived around the Sunday morning sermon. It was the key, and it wasn't 30 minutes. It was usually one and a half to two hours sitting on a backless bench in an unair conditioned and or unheated room with no stained glass. And yet it was the focus of their week. It was what they lived for. No children's church. It was the focus for all. 
I'm not saying it was it worked for all, but nevertheless, that was I'm not and I'm not advocating we do that. I like backs on my chairs and I like air conditioning and heating and I think we've advanced in a lot of ways. But we dare not remove the centrality of the word. Satan has done everything in his power to turn people away from the study of the Word of God, the sincere study. Oh, there are a lot of people who study it, but uh, they're just looking for, you know, just uh, some kind of a proof text or, or they're just looking for, uh, you know, something to show how Christians are hypocrites, you know. A sincere study of the Word with the purpose of transforming lives. How does Satan work at this? What does he do? Well, he tries to get people to ignore the Bible. That's pretty easy in our day. The Bible's just a book of legends. You, you know, you, you don't want to read that. To declare it to be irrelevant or outdated. As I mentioned last week, biblical minimalism. To diminish its importance or its significance and, and really try to say, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the miracles of the scripture are all made up and... Uh, there was no virgin birth. You know, Jesus was just you know, born to Mary, and he, he became sort of a, a good teacher and everything. But let's don't get all blown out of shape with this. You know. He's no better than Buddha or Muhammad or, or anybody else. To destroy the word, you know, kind of a Fahrenheit, whatever it is, 456, 454, whatever it is. To, to fear to read it. Oh, a lot of people are afraid to read it. Oh, I can't read the Bible. I, I'm not good enough to read the Bible. Th this is true. But uh, God wants us to read it anyway. To be bored by it. Ever heard anybody say, oh, it's boring? Well, <laughs> to be too tired, too busy, curse it, laugh at it. Anything except humbly, honestly study and meditate on it. Because if Satan can get us to do any of those other things, he wins. We lose. Why is this, why, why is this so important to Satan? Why is it so important to him that we neglect the Word of God? He doesn't care if we sing, most of the time, unless we're singing Scripture. He, he doesn't care if we do this and do that and the other thing, but he really cares when we get down to the sincere and honest study of the Word of God because he knows that the Word of God is the manifestation of the divine nature. It's the expression of the character of God himself. To know the Word of God is to know God himself. Merle C. Tenney in his commentary on the Gospel of John says, to the Hebrew mind, the word of God was the self-assertion of the divine personality. The Bible is not just a bunch of words on a page. It's not a book just like the Iliad or the Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, wh whatever good those other books are, they make interesting literature, but they have nothing to do with the reality of life. They have nothing to do with eternality and, and establishing the kingdom of God on earth because the Bible alone was inspired by God and is the reflection of the very nature of the divine being. Why is it that the Apostle John used the word logos when he sort of paraphrased the first verse of Genesis? When he said, in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was, were, was, was God. I could go into all the philosophical ramifications of that. Dr. Walmart could do that far better than I. But the Logos was the incarnate expression of God as the Bible is the written expression of God. Hence, I think to know the written word is to know the incarnate word. 
When I say to know it, I don't mean just to know about it or to be able to quote a verse or two here or there. I mean to know what God is saying to us and how to apply it to our lives. I think there, that these are some of the reasons for the imperative given in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and you shall so that you may be careful to do according to what is written in it. And of course, it sounds a great deal like James, does it not? Where James tells us that we are not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. That's why Jesus said, you are my disciple if you obey me. The doing of the word, not just the hearing of the word, is the critical point. We often fail in our Christian walk because we do not know or understand the word maybe, or we do not truly believe that obedience to it is the key issue in life. That it is only by obedience to the word that we will have prosperity and success. Because that's exactly what God says to Joshua. That as you study the word and meditate on it and do according to it, he says, for then I will make your way prosperous. Then your way will be prosperous and you will have success. That doesn't mean that suddenly you'll find some kind of a stock out there that's going to go the opposite way the market is and you're going to make a killing, necessarily. Because God's definition of prosperity and success is not always the world's definition of prosperity and success. But to accomplish what God has called us to do so that when we pass through the proverbial per, uh, pearly gates, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I mean, that is worth more than billions and billions of dollars are worth in this life. I don't think that you and I can begin to perceive what those words will mean to us. It, it just gives me shivers. I don't think emotionally we could take it in this life. I think only as we are given the new, the new body, whatever, all is going to be standing there in his presence when he says those words, if he does, can only then can we even take those words. Many Christians still hold on to the pagan idea of luck and good fortune. Every time somebody says, oh, I was lucky, I, I just have to do this because I want to say there's no such thing as luck. You are not lucky if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You, this happened because God so ordained it in your life. God allowed it in your life. Luck has nothing to do with it. There's no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as luck. It's made up by the pagans to try to figure out how it was some people win and some people lose or to believe in our own ability to achieve prosperity and success. <laughs> I've, I've heard many Christians who say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Well, you know, there is a way in which there's a measure of truth in that. You, as, as you've heard so many times when people are talking about how God leads you, well, God can't, lead a, you know, can't steer a ship that's not moving. So you've got to be helping yourself and going in some direction so God can guide you. But, but the meaning of that in many people's mind is you've got to go out there and do it and then God will kind of come alongside and, and help it to work. No. We've got to be out, we have got to be about God's business to start with. We've got to be doing what God has called us to do. And, and that's what this passage is all about. He says, I have called you to, to go into this land and to conquer it and to lead this people. And I will be with you because you obey me. He doesn't tell Joshua, well, think up something to do and go do it and then I'll be with you and I'll help you because you're doing it. No. God doesn't say that. And that's why sometimes we hit a brick wall. We've got our own little bright idea about what we're going to do. And so we go after it and God says, 
stop, that's not my direction for you. Scripture makes it clear that it alone contains the key to successful Christian living. It alone. A lot of other good books out there that talk about successful Christian living. And to the extent that they're based on Scripture, they're valuable. To the extent they're based on human philosophy, forget it. Forget it. Well, let me read the next, the last passage of the chapter. We won't get to it today, but I want it in our minds as we think about next week. Joshua chapter 1, verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross over before your brothers in battle array, all your valiant warriors, and you shall help them. Until the Lord gives your brothers rest, as he gives you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess it, that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Verse 16. And they answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us we will do. Wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And if anyone rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. That was God's gift to Joshua. These people who had the least reason to be willing to do this, God puts it in their heart to say, we will do it. And if anybody disobeys you, we'll have them executed. Only you be strong and courageous and show us the way. I think Joshua's heart sung. He was on literally on cloud nine because to him that was probably the toughest problem to face. What about the two and a half tribes who are all settled in? Will they forget their words? Well, we'll, we'll be looking at them and, and this last half next week and then we'll be plunging into the story of one of the most interesting persons in Scripture, in Rahab, and a person that is such a powerful example of the mercy of God.